Well, how many words, how many pages or chapters does it take to tell the history of the world? Well, impressively, E.H. Gombrich in his book, a book I have and have read, called A Little History of the World, right here, good book, does it in less than 300 pages. Pretty impressive. More impressively, though, as we come to the end of Daniel... Uh, the Lord does it more or less in two chapters, maybe three, Daniel 10, 11, and 12. We're in the last two chapters of Daniel. As with world history in general, so we're already seeing in Daniel 11, having heard the first 28 uh, verses, there's a whole lot that happens in the world. A lot of details on a macro level, micro level, Uh, So much we can't keep it all into our minds, of course. Um, And there's questions that that emerge. What's most important in history or about history? Uh, What does it mean for you and me? How do I make sense of it? What place do I have uh, in this world? With these questions in mind, we continue pressing on in Daniel uh, chapter 11, uh, a chapter that... If I were preaching topically, in all frankness and honesty, I don't think I would probably ever get to Daniel chapter 11. Um, I don't know how many of you have read or studied Daniel 11 uh, recently. I am guessing, it's only a guess, that you probably in your reading or devotional reading didn't have cross-references bringing you to Daniel chapter 11. Uh, But as Paul said to the Ephesian elders there in Acts chapter 20, he didn't shrink back from preaching and teaching the whole counsel of God. It is the Word of God. And so there is uh, importance here uh, for us. So Daniel 11, picking up at verse 29. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery, those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the, king, till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay any attention to any other god, For he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses 
with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land. And tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand. Edom and Moab and the main parts of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver, and all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. You've probably heard the saying, uh, it's all Greek to me, right? That's an English idiom simply meaning I don't understand. And you may be feeling that way uh, right now, uh, having heard all of a lengthy chapter, Daniel chapter 11. Uh, you also may be feeling a bit in the weeds, another uh, idiom, uh, perhaps applicable here. If Daniel 11 is unfamiliar to you, and you're someone also who likes to master details, you're going to be highly frustrated over the next several minutes because it's it's simply impossible to grasp all the details that are going on in chapter 11 in that kind of time. Though we'll highlight some of the more prominent or or high points in this prophetic word, this revelation, I want to first recognize this revelation here in chapter 11 is a spoken one rather than a visionary one. This chapter contrasts well with, if you recall, chapter 7 and 8, where Daniel is given visions and pictures describing, for example, these four beasts coming up out of the sea or a picture of a ram and a goat, these very visibly dramatic pictures. And then afterward came an explanation of those images or symbols. But here, in the whole chapter, it's all narrated, it's all explained in words. I don't think there's any symbols or or images uh, given to us. Some of these uh, words are hard to grasp, but at other points there's very definite and clear uh, communication to us as to who is represented. So this is a prophecy, this is a revelation more to the ear than it is to the eye. And I think there's an important point here that while throughout the whole of the Scriptures, the Lord does use symbols, we've seen them, and images and pictures, in most of them, they are never so important as the words which explain them. Now, to be sure, God has given us eyes, physical eyes, to behold and glory in His creation. We think of the psalmists. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaim His handiwork. Or Psalm 8. When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and stars, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Yet, in very important ways, God has given priority to word, to language over image. Uh, We live in a culture today that has exalted image in a number of ways over that of language or word. 
You think about images, uh, they are much more immediately emotive. They grab your feelings and your emotions. But in important ways, God elevates language and word. It's less ambiguous than, than image. Not only does Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3 tell us all things were created by the Word of God, the power of His Word, but Paul says faith itself comes by hearing, and that through the Word of Christ in Romans chapter 10. We see the priority of the Word uh, in and through Scripture. Well, what does the Lord reveal to us in this Word, in the words of chapter 11? I want to highlight a few figures and turning points in sort of the big picture here of, of God's unfolding story of redemption. The first 35 verses of this chapter are retelling with some more detail what we've already seen in the vision of chapter 8. If you recall that picture and that vision, the emergence of this ram with two horns, those horns we were told represented the Medes and the Persians, these rising kingdoms following the Babylonians. But then this he or male goat comes with this conspicuous horn, Alexander the Great, and crushes the ram. So you have a picture of these rising kingdoms and these ruthless kings. Alexander the Great, later Antiochus Epiphanes. Well, here we're told in verse 2, three kings arise in Persia. There seems to be uncertainty as to their identity. But there's a fourth that is mentioned. The fourth is likely none other than Xerxes or Ahasuerus, who we read about as the figure in the story of Esther, Queen Esther, Xerxes or Ahasuerus. But then notice, the Persian king or the Persians stir up the kingdom of Greece. And you look at verse 3. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven. This, this king of Greece. This is likely here referring to Alexander the Great. Ruling with tremendous power for a short time, 12 or so years in the 330s B.C., but what happens? We're told his kingdom is plucked up abruptly. And those four winds are referring to the same thing back in chapter 8. Remember the conspicuous horn of the goat, Alexander the Great. He's crushed, and out of it come what? Four horns. Those four horns or four generals or kings that follow Alexander the Great is what's being referred to here as these the four winds of heaven. Two of those become the focus through most of Daniel chapter 11. The Ptolemies and the Seleucids. Verse 5. The king of the south is mentioned. Running through the chapter is referring to the Ptolemaic dynasty, ruling Egypt to the south and the west. The Ptolemaic dynasty. Then you have the king of the north, mentioned in verse 6, and through much of the chapter, that is the Seleucid dynasty, ruling Babylon and Palestine, including Jerusalem and Syria. 
As you run through the chapter, what you're reading are alliances, wars, marriages, interactions between these two dynasties for maybe a couple hundred years, for a lengthy time, until eventually emerges the figure Antiochus Epiphanes from the Seleucid dynasty, ruling Babylon, Palestine around 175 B.C. He's described in verse 21 as contemptible, working deception and flattery. Notice what it says of him in verse 31 and 32. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. They shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. Verse 36. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. As we've seen before, Antiochus, this Greek ruler, profaned the things of God, killed thousands of Jews, and brought a desolation to the temple, ruling from 175 to 164 B.C. Let's recognize and remember here Something about this period of time. We call it, among other things, this intertestamental time. We may not give a lot of attention to this particular time in history. This 400 or so year period of time, 400 years between the final prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi, till John the Baptist steps onto the stage in the opening of the, of the New Testament, preparing the way for the Messiah. Malachi comes about 100 years after the decree went out by King Cyrus, the Persian king, by the word of the Lord to begin allowing the exiles to return to Jerusalem. That was 538, 539. hundred or so years later, Malachi steps onto the page, onto the scene. And you've got 400 or so years of time that passes before the opening events of the New Testament. In some ways, we could say it's, it's a silent time or a dark time, but in another way, it's a very active and tumultuous time, as we're seeing in this prophetic word from the Lord through Daniel. It's a difficult time in part because as these kingdoms and these dynasties are fighting for power, Israel is squeezed in between, being dispersed, resettled into numerous different locations. In fact, history records the diaspora, the dispersion, the growing dispersion of God's people at this time. Jews being settled in Babylon to the east, around Jerusalem and Galilee, Phrygia and Lydia, present-day Turkey, Egypt, particularly Alexandria. So the, the Israelites are being dispersed and resettled all over. As we read some of the details of this time period and through this chapter, it's very easy, and there's a temptation to view it kind of like a history museum. It's in the distant past. There's artifacts. There's events, but they're far removed from us. Right? If you walk into a museum, if you've been to our nation's capital, maybe the D.C. History Museum or the Smithsonian American Art Museum, and you, you enter in, you're excited at first, but then you're overwhelmed by the amount of information. 
An hour or two goes by and your mind is filling up and your eyes begin to glaze over. You just can't keep taking it all in. There's just way too much. And you begin to wonder, what does this have to do with me? What's the point of it all? How, how is history connected? But if we can put ourselves in the shoes of those covenant members of long ago, I think we would find that the same kinds of challenges, the same hopes, the same concerns, the same personal struggles that they had, we have. Questions. The same questions. What's God doing in the world today? How do we navigate a nation or a culture either indifferent to the things of God or at times strongly opposed to the things of God? What am I standing on in order to have hope in this kind of world? What kind of person person am I going to be for the time that God gives me, that He allots for me on this earth? What am I living for? And there is a verse in this whole text, probably the verse I would desire for us to take hold of and take with us, that really shines through in the midst of opposition, in the midst of Antiochus pressing his his sort of wickedness against God's people. And it comes in verse 32. It mentions of him, he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. And then here's the line. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. The people who know their God. In the context, it seems to be referring to what we know as the Maccabean revolt, the, the Maccabees from Maccabeus, a, a figure at this time. A, a Jew. These are, these are Jews who refuse to yield or to acquiesce to the order to offer sacrifice to pagan gods. It's referring to those faithful believers who knew their scriptures, uh, who knew the story perhaps in the word of, of Daniel, who, who knew full well what we know from Daniel 2, for example. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. He's the one who changes times and seasons. He removes kings and He sets up kings. Or Proverbs 21. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever He will. What has happened through Daniel's life, through the exile of God's people, uh, the rise and fall of many kingdoms, it's not happenstance. It's not chance. It is the hand of the Lord, ultimately. He's confronting evil. He's judging sin. He's sanctifying His people. It is His hand shaping history in all of its twists and turns, periods of great hope as well as dark ages. So yes, the sovereign hand of God shapes and directs and governs history. But here's part of the point I would hope would emerge for us from this verse in 32. Knowing that He is sovereign in all things can bring us only so much hope can bring us only so much confidence or assurance. Thank the Lord that He rules supremely. 
But we need to know more than His sovereignty. We need to know Him. You have to know Him personally and us corporately. And in some ways, this is what life on earth boils down to for us as Christians. In all the twists and turns and changes of your own life, can it be said of you, can it be said of us, these people knew their God and they stood firm and they took action. Two brief quotes from J.I. Packer's Knowing God. He says, Your faith will not fail while God sustains it. You are not strong enough to fall away while God is resolved to hold you. That's a word of great assurance. And then he says this, Once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. Not that life's problems go away or disappear, but they are in a way put in their place when what we're truly after, pursuing with all our might, knowing personally and intently, wholeheartedly, is our God. Uh, This past week, one of our discipleship group members of the D group that I'm a part of, I think, put it very well. We were simply sharing what's happening in our lives at present, and he was describing a lot or circumstance that God has providentially put before him. And he said something to the effect of this, I'm simply learning and accepting that I'm one of God's small creatures, but that I'm called to be faithful with what he puts before me. Very important. Recognizing, I'm just one of God's small creatures, but I'm to be faithful with what he has ordained for me in my life. We don't have the power in ourselves to direct history, let alone much of what happens to us and around us in our own lives. But central is knowing my God and giving myself to Him daily. The one who does direct and shape all of history. And that's the final thing to see in this chapter and into chapter 12, is that history is not cyclical. And neither is your life. It is moving toward a teleos, an end. Reading this chapter is like looking up close at a particular piece of stone. And you look up at that just inches away from it and you're examining that particular piece of stone and its nuance and its shade and color and maybe inconsistencies or cracks. And then you step back a couple feet and you realize the stone you're looking at is actually connected to something larger. There's an archway, actually. Uh, And and you notice now this stone is a part of something that actually has design. And you step back further and you realize you're actually inside a room. It's a cathedral. A great cathedral. Maybe St. Paul's or Salisbury Cathedral. Massive. And it's got all of this design and symmetry and your eyes are moving in various uh, places. Uh, That's kind of how history is. If if you just look up close at Daniel 11, it's like looking up very closely at uh, at stone. Hard Hard to make sense of all this. And that's true not only of history, that's true of our own lives. The day to day can seem insignificant 
mundane, difficult at times. But as Peter said, we are living stones being built together by the Lord our God. So he's doing a masterwork that when we look up close, we can't, we can't see it. But if we step back and we know the story of God's redemptive work and where things are headed, then we see uh, he's, he's designing, he's working something out here. Starting at verse 36, many believe that there's a change in focus from Antiochus in that historical point to actually the Antichrist that Paul mentions in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the man of lawlessness, really, really starting to look toward the, the, the final end, right? the final stage of history. That, that the picture is moving us to the end of history. To this one in verse 36 who will speak against the God of gods. And you look at verse 1 through 3 of chapter 12, because this is all fitting together. Chapters 10, 11, and 12. Listen to these opening words of chapter 12. At that time shall arise Michael, chief of princes. We've heard about him before, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. We are brought here uh, to really the very end of history. And we see at the end of history what happens. There is a division. There is a sorting out at the general resurrection of the dead. And at that time, He says, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Some shall arise to everlasting life, some to everlasting contempt. This is precisely what our Lord Jesus teaches us in John chapter 5. This is what Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Don't marvel at this. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Are we pursuing to know our God? Do you know the Lord personally? Jeremiah 9 says that our boasting should not be in our strength or our wisdom, but let the one who boasts boast in this, that he knows and he understands me. Have you come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know the Lord of Scripture? Does He know you? Remember Jesus' words there in the Sermon on the Mount. Many will say to me on that last day, Lord, did we not do mighty works in Your name? Cast out evil spirits in Your name? And He'll say, I, I never knew you. And so our call is to pursue Truly and sincerely, life and knowledge and relationship with the Lord our God. And that's only done 
through repenting and coming to faith in Jesus Christ, the One who is life. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for the blessing it is to have life in Your name, to have relationship with You as our Heavenly Father, the One who speaks truth to us, the One who ministers to us and sustains us through even the valley of the shadow of death, who is with us, who guides and protects us, who has marvelous things in store for the people of God, a great inheritance to come. We pray, O Lord, that we would pursue You as Paul expressed so so passionately in in Philippians 3, that, that I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. The power of His resurrection to attain the resurrection of the dead. Lord, we thank You that in Christ we have the vine and that we are the branches and have been engrafted and that we might abide and remain in Him. Abide and remain in You. and He in us. That we might have life. Life everlasting. Deep, meaningful life. Abundant life. Lord, we praise You and and ask that um, You bind us together, Lord, as a people, um, that we would uh, encourage, love, care for one another, uh, exhort one another, Lord, uh, regularly uh, to pursue after You. And we pray all these things with thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.